Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Today's topic deals with the story of domestic abuse. Latoya Jackson said, quote, it doesn't matter how rich or poor a person is, what gender or social class, or how much fame or education she or he possesses. Verbal, mental, and physical abuse can happen to anyone. Brielle Cotterman joins us on today's show, and she is going to share her story as a survivor of attempted murder and domestic violence. And at the end of the show, we're going to hear from Melissa Hinchman from the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition about resources for victims of domestic abuse. So stick with us for the whole episode, because whether you are involved in a domestic abuse situation or you worry about someone else who is, or you're just interested in understanding this story better, we'll have some good stuff today. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Let me introduce Brielle Cotterman, and we'll jump right into this discussion. Brielle Cotterman is a TEDx speaker, publicity expert, and celebrity maker. She is a survivor of attempted murder and domestic violence and an advocate for a world where intimate partner abuse is not tolerated and survivors are met with empathy. She's a graduate of Indiana University, a world's grand champion equestrian, and she's been married for just over a year to the love of her life. She owns and operates a horse show breeding farm where she lives with her husband and her three children and many, many animals. Brielle. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. It's great to be here. So I left off in that introduction, your business life, but I think there's a little more to it than what I said. You have spent the better part of the last decade helping clients scale their their incomes or their businesses. Tell me a little about that. Um, So basically... And, and, you know, this, this all ties together, you know, basically the work that I do, I've been in the PR space for more than a decade. Prior to that, I was very high level sales and marketing. And when I went out on my own to start my own consultancy in marketing and PR, I decided that I was going to do things a little bit differently because having been in that marketing and PR space, I kept seeing people come in, they would look equally qualified on paper and one would kind of skyrocket to success and one would plateau. And you're going to appreciate this. My background is in statistical analysis, my um, undergraduate degree. So I like to know how things work. And so I just thought I'm going to use this as a case study and the differentiating characteristic that allowed those people to skyrocket to success was their story. Those are the people who saw value in their own story, and they were able to tell it in a way that inspired action. And so that's the cornerstone of the work that we do through my PR firm. We help people all over the world to step onto the world stage and, like you said, make a positive impact in their bottom line, but more importantly, to make a positive impact in the world. So you have done this yourself. You have a very um, dramatic story that has happened to you and you have been able to take this and instead of letting it hold you down and becoming bitter and hardened and closed off because of it, you have been able to use it to learn from and to propel you forward. Correct. 
Absolutely. Um, it, it's been a slow process. Um, there were many years that being a survivor of attempted murder and domestic violence, intimate partner abuse, that story kept me small for a very long time. Anytime a person experiences abuse, there is shame that goes along with that. And um, having been on the receiving end of extremely savvy um, and manipulative and mental and emotional abuse during that time period, um, it took a lot of recovery, a lot of therapy, a lot of healing practices. And, and yes, my story has been a catalyst for me to make a positive impact in the world because I don't want anybody else to have to go through what I experienced. Um, but it definitely took me quite some time, it took years. So, you know, I think that is very normal. And when we share our stories, we make an impact because it gives us the opportunity to help others find their way through those hard things. As we get started, let's go back to your story. Can you take us back to that time? Where, where does your story start with this? Yeah. So um, here's the thing. Here's the really interesting part. You know, one of the quotes that you, you shared earlier, it's quite similar to something that I like to say, domestic violence, intimate partner abuse, it does not discriminate. However, this was not something that I had been exposed to when I was growing up. Being in the haze, so to speak, of mental and emotional abuse, I didn't know what exactly I was experiencing, but I knew something felt wrong. Something felt off. The man that I was previously married to uh, quite some time ago, we were only together. Our, our relationship spanned three years total. It was a whirlwind romance. And as anyone would say who's been in that experience, oftentimes when people are mentally and emotionally abusive and manipulative, that's not how they come across when you first meet them. There's often a lot of charm there, um, especially for those who are the, you know, the narcissistic or the sociopathic type of personality disorder. And I was met with a, you know, what for all exterior perspective was a very extremely successful and talented and charming person who changed as things went on and that that attempt for control continued to grow and grow and grow throughout our relationship. We were only married for a total of nine months. So we were only married at the, at the end of um, our relationship for nine months. And uh, at the end of that time, I had filed for divorce. And so that was my mistake, Lori, because I did not understand um, when a woman, specifically when a woman tries to leave an abusive situation, and, and now both men and women are equally able to be in that type of a situation. But when a woman tries to leave an abusive marriage or an abusive situation, um, they take away the control of their abuser. And so they are 70 times more likely to die in the attempt to leave an abusive situation than they are during the entire time that they were a part of it. That's interesting. And yes, because so I work very, very closely. Um, there's a, a multitude of organizations that I support and promote and 
the National Domestic Violence Hotline here in the States, um, they have a really incredible plethora of statistics and information. And for me, this was not something that I was well aware of. I, I, I do not think that our media does a really good, a very good job of painting a picture that is accurate of what domestic violence can actually look like and who it can happen to and where it can happen. Um, well, during I, think, that relationship, I think what you pointed out, let me just interject this. I think when you pointed mm-hmm. out earlier that it can happen to anybody and, and we're talking about how somebody who hasn't been through it before, we share the story so that someone else can see it and know how to get through. I think this really supports the point you're talking about. You had not been through this before. This wasn't something you'd seen growing up. You didn't have any experience with being in an abusive situation. So how could you have known that? You know, you you couldn't have without hearing those stories or understanding the patterns or the, the red flags to note. So that makes sense that you wouldn't have known how. Uh, you know, or known what you were looking for. But can you share, I would like to know more as you share your story, what types of abuse were you seeing in the relationship? And did this not start until after you were married? So the actual progression, um, which I now know is quite common, is that, you know, it, it can start off in that mental and emotional abuse. And it's not uncommon for that to progress into physical abuse and and violence. In that particular relationship, um, he, you know, there were small things that off the, you know, to get uh, started, they didn't seem that outlandish, but they just kept building and building. And every single one of those was based on control. What color I was wearing or, you know, what color my fingernail polish was or um, the clothes that I was choosing. And, you know, to me, when that all began, it seemed very sweet that there was interest there, very um, innocent um, from my perspective, that there was, you know, a desire to be involved in those decisions. And, it progressively became less and less sweet and loving and far more controlling and manipulative. And what and, was? Um, so there were, you know, the desire for me to look nice, but then if we were to go out to dinner and um, other men would turn to look at what I was wearing or at me or whatever, then I would, you know, basically get in trouble over that. And so there were not only these attempts at control, there were also very conflicting messaging, um, a lot of gaslighting going on, a lot of, you know, what I understand now to be very typical um, traits of someone who is grooming the the person that they're abusing. Um, But I didn't know that at the time. So I hear the word gaslighting come up a lot when I speak with women who, um, are in abusive situations. Can you explain to the listeners what that is and share an example of what that looked like in your relationship? I'm going to give you a really, an example that um, my housekeeper shared with me many years after this um, entire situation took place. You know, she said, you could look at the sky and you could see that the sky was blue, but he could stand there and he could say, no, no, I'm quite certain that it's red. I think you might be seeing that wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with the way you're seeing that. And she said, you know, he could do that in such a way that it would really honestly make you question, gosh, is the sky actually red and I'm just seeing this wrong? And I think that's a really good example of 
you know, gaslighting is often what puts us in that place of continuously questioning, well, I'm, I thought I was doing this to, you know, choosing the right color because this was the color that he really likes for my fingernail polish. But, you know, now I'm getting in trouble basically for getting attention. So maybe I didn't do this the right way. And so it's constantly planting those seeds and, and, and making you question what is the reality. Yeah. I was going to say that. I think that's sort of the way that it sums it up as I've spoken with other people is that gaslighting is creating a different reality than the one that is there and, and trying to suck the people that they're abusing into it. Is that Absolutely. Yeah. Just like telling you the sky is red, you know, and making you putting you in a place where you're questioning, like, gosh, I'm quite certain it's blue, but you know, maybe, maybe I need to think about it again. I don't know. So did Um, the abuse stay pretty um, manipulative like that? Or did he start yelling at you and screaming when he couldn't control a certain thing? What all did that look like? The more we got to know each other, I definitely understood that there was a temper there you know, and, and so looking at like those exact interactions, um, the thing that I think is, is perhaps even more important than all of the major, you know, details of his behavior was, is my behavior. Um, and my behavior when I was being yelled at, or when, you know, there were was cussing and, you know, there was an instance where, flipped a plate through the air, you know, I mean, just like things like that, that were, um, red flags, but they were always, there was always a reason and there was always an explanation and there was always a reason why that had happened. And there was always an explanation that made it make sense. And so I thought that I was doing the right thing. I thought that I was loving unconditionally. And I thought that I was forgiving and, you know, being a good partner. What red flags would you suggest that other women who are, you know, maybe suspect that they're in an unhealthy and abusive relationship, they can sense that they're being manipulated a lot. Um, what, what red flags would you suggest they look for? There are non-traditional warning signs, and I've written quite a few articles about um, non-traditional warning signs in intimate partner abuse. And I think those are very, very important. Some of those include belittling you or making fun of you, especially in public, but commonly with the excuse of, oh, I was just teasing, or you need to stop being so sensitive, things like that, those types of statements. And then also using your children, using your animals, using anything that you love to manipulate, threaten, or control. That is a warning sign that I see and hear time and time and time again, even when things have not progressed into physical violence. Um, But that is abuse and it is not okay. Threatening someone, um, you know, trying to force someone to stay, whatever that might be. Uh, But if they are using your animals, your children, or anything or any person that you love to try to control and manipulate you, that is an unhealthy situation. And you need to figure out what are some safe exit strategies. And that's a really important part that safe exit strategy. You were taking me to the part where you had filed for divorce. And was this when the attempted murder happened? 
So I, on the day that I filed for divorce, Lori, I knew that um, it was the right day to go and sign the papers because I knew there were other people there uh, visiting in town for the day and for dinner and so forth. And so I thought that I would be, he would be distracted. I would be able to, you know, kind of sneak out, go sign. The attorneys had everything prepared and he came in as I was getting ready to leave. And he tried to lock me in my closet that day. I knew that I needed to leave. Things had gotten to the point where I was scared, very scared. And it was, you know, I'm talking like hundreds of text messages in a day's time, very much like I'm looking at your phone records and your phone says you have 87 texts, but your phone record says you have 90, you you deleted three text messages. Who were they from? You know, those sorts of just nonstop. So as I was attempting to leave, I did not have a safe exit strategy. I tried to leave that day and he tried to lock me into my closet. I was able to get out. I briefly told the attorneys what had happened when I got there. And they said they really encouraged me to file a protective order. And I didn't do it. Um, They encouraged me to file an emergency protective order and I didn't do it. And um, why didn't you? I didn't do it because I, he had threatened over and over and over and over again that, you know, this is going to be public. This is going to affect his business. This is going to be bad, you know, for him. And he was our sole source of income in our family. And so, you know, there were a lot of things that were attached to that, a lot of conditioning. And so I, when they encouraged me, I said, I I didn't want to do that because I was afraid that it would make it worse. And I still, to this day, I don't know, you know, that it wouldn't have because he was very much in a position where nobody left him. You know, that was his, that was, you know, it was a very big thing um, beyond the control. That was a big part of it. And so I filed for divorce. I did not file the protective order. I don't, I, I honestly don't know that it would have helped when the actual day of trauma took place. Um, he came back into town. We were to, we were supposed to meet with our attorneys and then everything was sorted. There was just, there were two weeks left until everything would be finalized just from a timing perspective. Um, so we met with them and afterwards the attorney had sent me an email and he said, oh yeah, you know, I think I was just overreacting um, when I had, you know, pushed you to file the, um, protective order because he seems like a great guy, you know, seems like a, seems like a good guy. You think he'd know better being a divorce attorney, wouldn't you? (laughs) If they didn't seem like good guys, you'd never allow them to be in a position where they could manipulate you. Absolutely. And so within a few days, um, I had gone to work out, I came home and he said, he was there, you know, at the house, he had been gone in an, in another um, part of the country. And he said, you know, I want to, I'm going to take care of you. So I, I want to talk about um, all of this. I know I've been awful about it, about the divorce and everything, but um, if this is what you really want, I'm going to take care of you today. And um, that conversation turned to him holding a loaded gun to my head and pulling the trigger and the gun miraculously misfiring. In that moment, um, you know, and uh, any 
I'm sure that for most people who experience trauma, um, there is no time to reflect. There is not one moment to um, even digest the experience at that point. It is fight or flight. It is basic survival in that moment. And um, I was able to escape through a window um, of a small room. I, I, there was, there were no thoughts going through my mind in that moment. I literally felt like it was an out of body experience that I was watching um, myself leave and I was not making any decisions. I believe wholeheartedly that um, if it weren't for my faith, if it weren't for the divine intervention there, that, that I wouldn't be here today. Then moments after I was able to escape through a small window, um, the door behind me was riddled with bullets and, um, and then he took his own life. Everything was premeditated. There was um, a note, there were plans made ahead of time, um, all sorts of things that had been brewing, you know, that took a lot of consideration. How did you feel when he took his life? Uh, I was gone from the property. I had fleed the property. I was with um, the authorities at that point. There were other people in the house. I was able to get to my vehicle. I ran out and around the front of the home. Uh, you know, I was scared to death, Lori, that um, somebody else was going to get harmed. Uh, it never crossed my mind that he would ever hurt himself, ever, 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 ever just knowing the person that he was. So I was already with um, the authorities by that time. Just They were just a couple miles away and, you know, driving frantically, fearing that I was being chased, you know, all of those things. You know, anytime a person loses their life, especially someone that you have been in a relationship with or are married to or connected with um, intimately, you know, that's never something that you want to see happen um ever was, was there no sense of relief um there was a sense of yes and no um i will say that i mean this is a person who was who was trying to murder me and knowing that that would you know that that risk was removed was um a relief but what had happened uh for me was Slipping into PTSD, um, I then created irrational fears all the time in my life. So even the fact that my abuser was no longer living, I still let him and the abuse control me for a very long time. So what do you hope that people will take away from your experience as they hear about it and learn? And, and you are generous in sharing it across um, many platforms. What do you hope people will learn? Well, I think the one of the most important things is non-traditional warning signs. And then understanding that if something feels off, more than likely it is. Um, also, have a safe exit strategy. Don't just try to leave. I had no idea the what I was dealing with. I had no idea how volatile and mentally and emotionally abusive situation can become. Um, also, someone just 
shoving you or pushing you or knocking you down or it's something minor. It doesn't matter if they make sense of it to you. It doesn't matter if they apologize and whatever. It's not okay. Even those small things, grabbing your wrist, you know, that used to happen in restaurants. Those, that's not okay. Those are all abusive acts and you are not safe if you're experiencing those sorts of things. My second husband was very emotionally abusive and so much so, and it was definitely about control also. And I had moved to a different town to be with him once we got married. And so I didn't know anybody. And, you know, we're part of a religion where there's a bishop and his wife and the, the, I didn't know anyone. So she was trying to befriend me at church Mm -hmm. and she waved at me. Like she waved at me in church meeting. That was all that happened. And when I got home, I got yelled at so severely um, and he was very crude. He told me I should go F the bishop's wife because she was, you know, just yelled at me for the fact that I had had any kind of, I don't know, connection with another human being that he couldn't control, that I might find a friend that, I don't know, that what I liked better than him. You know, I, I don't know what the story was in his mind, but I can tell you from my personal experiences there are moments of real terror in that because it mm-hmm. doesn't it doesn't make sense. It's just crazy ass stuff. Yeah, yes, it is. It is, and you know that's the thing um, that people a lot of people don't understand. Um, just like I shared the statistic about when people try to leave, especially women when they try to leave an abusive situation, because I always hear that question being asked. Well, why didn't you just leave? Or why didn't you leave sooner? You know, and and that I hate that question more than anything because, you know, that's basically when we drink alcohol, we're seven times more likely to be in a car accident than if we we're not drinking, you know. And when we're asking people, why didn't you just leave? They're 70 times, 70% more likely to lose their life, you know? So that's just in and of itself, a horrific question to ask when you're in that relationship. And when you begin that relationship, you don't begin that relationship with the person who you're with when you exit it. Absolutely. And that's what you have to keep in mind. Well, and I also think when someone asks that question, it's not that they're being insensitive. It's simply an indicator that they don't, they have not had that experience. It's just simply one of not understanding because I feel like one of the greatest gifts that my experience with that abusive marriage gave me was that I have always been a very strong woman. And so that question was one, like, I would think if your husband's abusing you, why don't you wait till he goes to sleep at night and just hit that sucker over the head with a really big, you know, cast iron frying pan or something (laughs) like, you know, like defend yourself. Like, and, and you know, if somebody's hitting me, you're not going to get away with that for very long. Like, you know, I mean, you know, and that was my big bravado of, I just did not understand how people could put up and tolerate with abuse. And then after going through that marriage, um, I loved him and I kept working with him over and over and, you know, therapy and whatever we could do and believing that it would change. And, and, and it gave me an experience and an understanding that I, I just couldn't have had any other way. You know, and absolutely. Well, when you do, when you are in a relationship with a person and and a marriage relationship or, you know, any sort of intimate relationship and you do care for them and have feelings and love them, of course, you don't want to see that turn bad. Nobody ever goes into a relationship with the intention that 
this is going to turn bad or someone's going to be mean to the other person or, you know, someone's going to end up being abusive or any of those things. People don't enter relationships that way, but when they turn that way, the important thing is that one, you start to recognize the non-traditional warning signs and two, you're smart enough to gather a safe exit strategy. You've mentioned safe exit strategy. What does that mean to you? What is a safe exit strategy? So like? The um, National Domestic Violence Hotline, they actually work with people who are trying to leave an abusive situation to help them do so in a way that is going to get them to safety. Um, they don't want them to become one of those statistics, one of that 70% who don't make it there. And, um, you know, in all of my writing and speaking as an advocate against domestic violence, um, I have had tens of thousands of women reach out to me via email, um, through social media. I make myself very available in the domestic violence space. And um, I have had the opportunity to connect some of those women with the National Domestic Violence Hotline so that they can help them to craft and create a safe exit strategy and actually be able to leave the situation and find their way to safety. Because when, um, as you understand full well, when you are in a situation where there is mental and emotional abuse involved um, or any type of abuse for that matter, um, it is a very complex situation. It is not a cut and dry situation. And so the act of simply packing up your things and leaving, most of the time, most victims have been groomed um, to believe and understand that I will lose my children or I will lose my animals or the, the things or the people that I love because they, this person will make sure that that happens. You know, there are additional consequences. So when you think about leaving, and you understand or you start to see that it is complex. It's not cut and dry. Um, there are resources out there to help you and to support you through that process. And speaking of resources, um, we're going to hear from Melissa with the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, and she's going to talk about resources that are available here in the state of Utah. But if you're listening from another state or another country, there's a good chance that those are available um, wherever you're at. So Brielle, how can people get a hold of you if they um, want to connect with you over these things? Absolutely. So I, uh, my website and all social media is Brielle Cotterman and it's B-R-I-E-L-L-E and it's Cotterman, C-O-T-T-E-R-M-A-N. The, also, there's a wonderful resource in the domestic violence hotline, uh, National Domestic Violence um, hotline. It is online. There is a 1-800 number and they also have a safe exit on their website. So if you're in the position as I was, where someone is monitoring um, your phone use or your iPad use or your computer, um, you have a safe exit from their website that will not track it in your search history. Oh, that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. That's great. I, you can also go to the library and use library computers if you mm -hmm. need to use someone's that, you know, something that's not tied to you. Do you have any final thoughts as we close up the show? Yes. I appreciate you having me. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share. I think that um, these are things that we have to start talking about. They're not 
conversations that are often easy for people to start. And I can tell you this, it wasn't until I shared my story of being a survivor that many women in my world stepped forward and shared with me their journey of overcoming abuse. However, one in three women experience some sort of abuse during their lifetime. So one in three. And it wasn't until I shared my story that it gave them that feeling of safety or that permission that they needed to share their own. So if you are in a situation like this, if you have been in a situation or you know someone that you fear may be in a situation, please share your story. And first, share your story with someone who can help you and then share your story with someone that you can help. Mm. Bring it full circle, huh? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for being on the show. We appreciate you. Thank you, Lori. I appreciate you. And thanks for having me. For sure. And I'm going to have her contact information in the show notes on www.loveyourstorypodcast.com under this episode. So you can scroll down into those and connect with her. For too many people, violence is a part of their story. We talk about living intentionally, and part of not being a victim is standing up for yourself. Choosing to seek help when violence becomes an unwelcome part of your life, and when perhaps nobody else is standing up for you. I've invited Melissa Henschen. Thank you, Melissa, for being here. She is the prevention coordinator for the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, and she's going to talk to us today about local Utah resources. And if you're listening and you're not from Utah, there's a good chance that your state has similar services. So, Melissa, welcome. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Well, let's just start out with a little bit of your story. How did you get into this type of work? Well, uh, through some trials and tribulations while in college, I found myself choosing to study in women, gender, and sexuality studies. It really uh, called to me, and uh, through that is how I found this line of work. I began as a volunteer with a local domestic violence organization in Kansas and just really didn't see anything else for, for myself if I wasn't able to go into that work when I graduated and fortunately, they felt the same way and uh, brought me on. And I worked in a rural Kansas community for six years, assisting survivors of domestic violence uh, to find safety and stability in their lives, as well as educating the community and advocating for uh, resources and systemic change for the survivors in that community as well. And really, as I mentioned, just found my heart there and wanted to continue working in that field even as I, I left Kansas and started my moves west. And I was very fortunate to uh, spend some time working at a organization that served adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse when I was in Colorado, managing their events and outreach programs. And now finally that brings me to uh, the prevention coordinator role with the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, uh, being able to assist all of the service providers in the state of Utah with the prevention work and services that they are providing on the ground for survivors of domestic violence. And currently, I guess there are 15 programs throughout the state. Is that correct? That is correct. Our newest program, they just opened down in Blanding this week. They got certified. So we're really excited to have 
uh, that new program serving the southeast corner of our state. So having been in three different states and worked with, you know, three different communities with abuse, I bet you have seen some horrible things. Unfortunately, uh, that does go with this line of work, uh, and especially um, when I was working directly with survivors themselves and helping them um, plan for their safety and support them through the different processes that they were going through in order to achieve safety and stability uh, for themselves and for their families. So what kinds of abuse, if someone's out there listening and thinking, oh, I, I might be abused, or maybe I'm just making a big deal out of this or whatever, can you kind of give me a list of abuses that, that you see that fall under the category of domestic violence? Absolutely. And that's such a great question. Um, first of all, I would encourage anyone who has never seen the power and control wheel to uh, search that on the internet and pull up a power and control wheel. It is a, a tool that originally came out of Um, the Duluth Project up in Minnesota and is widely used now um, nationally and internationally to help survivors understand the dynamics of abusive relationships. And that wheel goes through, um, again, a variety of different things that are are not all-encompassing to everyone's experience. However, uh, do have a common theme that a lot of people can identify with. Um, Intimidation tactics, isolation, using emotional abuse, psychological abuse, um, economic abuse and threats, um, and using privilege as well. And so that's just kind of a, a quick overview, but to really dig into what we what we tend to see are these dynamics of power and control. And oftentimes they take the form of emotional and psychological abuse or verbal abuse um, first and more often. Um, oftentimes, the, the threat of physical or sexual abuse is, is enough to sometimes keep someone, quote unquote, in line to have them do what their abusive partner or spouse um, wants them to do. And so they don't have to resort to physical and sexual violence um, in a lot of relationships. And again, that is not all inclusive for everyone. But most survivors, most victim survivors of domestic violence can relate to the, the put downs the minimizing or denial of how of their own feelings or how they felt in a situation, um, gaslighting, which is making someone doubt their own sanity. Did that actually happen? Um, am I right about that? Um, using children to to control someone and to get them to do what they want to do by making making subtle or inadvertent threats about um, what might happen with the kids if the survivor doesn't comply with the abuser's behavior. So um, that type of control, stalking behavior, you know, who can you talk to? Um, how do you spend your time? Um, sometimes even how do you look, how you present yourself? Um, abusers can take all kinds of control away from the uh, partners in their lives that they are so desperately trying to to mold and shape to their own ways. And so I think that while physical and sexual abuse are what most people think about when we think about domestic violence, um, and those are very important and traumatic, devastating components, but those are not um, the everyday experience. And those are not um, even the more common experience of most survivors. Most of it is gonna be that emotional, psychological, verbal, um, economic, or even spiritual abuse tactics. Okay, so if someone is being threatened where do they go? And I guess what this is a broader question of what programs are available, because if you know, if you 
have been physically abused and that's, you know, happened repeatedly and you need to go to a shelter to hide out, you know, that's kind of what I think of when I think of shelter. But let's say that you, you know, you're listening to this podcast and you know that your partner uses attempts like that, threatening or um, emotional or, you know, abuse, and you're not certain that, you know, that you want the relationship to end. You don't necessarily want to throw a big fit, but you might want help or counseling or different insights that you got privately. Um, What kind of programs are available for this whole spectrum? Absolutely. Thank you for asking that because yes, resources and connections are so important. I do want to back up for just a moment and say that um, most of us think in an ideal world that if we get treated like this in a relationship, get out and leave. Um, And yes, that's what a lot of people who experience domestic violence or intimate partner violence want as well, um, or at least at some point, because uh, none of us would have started these relationships if there wasn't something good there, if there wasn't love, if there wasn't a connection. And when you spend, you know, time with someone, oftentimes years, when you have children with someone and you build a family and a life, it is not as simple as, as leaving Um, or even wanting to leave. You know, there's a lot of complicated mixed feelings um, and also resources and access that come into that um, why don't you just leave question that we often ask. And so um, for survivors who are listening and for loved ones who are wanting to support the survivor in their life, um, I would encourage being open to, to how that process of leaving looks and works for someone. Um, Perhaps someone tries to leave and then, you know, have to go back because of um, financial considerations or the kids or, um, you know, maybe you just, you're hoping for change. And those are all very valid reasons to to stay and go back. Um, So really respecting someone's own knowledge and understanding of their relationship and what is safe for them and when it's safe for them um, and how they go about that process. But for the loved ones who are listening, um, really just being a, a safe person, a person who approaches their their loved loved one who's in a domestic violence relationship non-judgmentally and supportively, and honors their choices of when and what to do. So I want to start with that because um, that's often a question that we get: is why doesn't she just leave? Um, and it's because it's very complicated. So for those people who are ready to to reach out for help, who who are looking for perhaps shelter or perhaps um, counseling or services for their children um, or other uh, resources in the community, perhaps to help pay some bills. Um, For Utah, my suggestion would be to call the 24-hour link line at 1-800-897-LINK or 5465. Um, that is a hotline for information and referrals for individuals in Utah who are experiencing domestic violence. You can receive crisis intervention from the advocates who answer the line and immediate safety planning. It's available 24 hours a day with access to up to 150 languages. So that would be my first suggestion for folks who live in Utah. What a great resource. Yes, thank you. We're so glad to be able to offer it because it can connect people with their local programs. Um, But it starts with that immediate safety planning and need um, before you do that. So it's really a great resource. A similar one for folks outside of Utah, although it's available for Utahns as well, um, is the hotline. So you can reach the hotline, which is a United States national domestic violence hotline um, at 1-800-799-7233. Their website is also thehotline.org, so very easy to find and access. Uh, They have a deaf and hard of hearing, 
uh, access, and they are also available 24-7 with access to more than 200 languages and have um, not only phone services, but chat available. So they're also a really wonderful resource. So these links will be in the show notes on our website. So loveyourstorypodcast.com and you'll just go underneath this episode and all the show notes are there. And those links and phone numbers will be there for you to follow up with. Melissa, having been here, having watched people, having you know been through this with you know across the board situations, as we close out, what is your personal suggestion for someone experiencing abuse? What what would you put out there and say to them? First of all, I would like to say that what is happening to you, what has happened to you is not your fault. You have done nothing to bring on any of the violence or abuse that you have experienced from your partner or spouse. That is their choice in the relationship and it is not yours. And so be kind to yourself, be forgiving, um, and just know that you deserve a relationship that is better that is healthier and where you are treated as an equal and respected. You know, I think a lot of times the tactic that they use is to always blame it on the victim, right? Like you made me do that. Or if you weren't this way, then I wouldn't have to discipline you or lash out at you or whatever it is. And so I think the, you know, right up front saying, this is not your fault. Even if you have come to believe that it is your fault, you know, that there's something wrong with you and you deserve to be treated that way. You're not worthy of better treatment. Even if you've come to the place where you believe that across the board, it is not true. And the reason that I think we can say this is because everybody, no matter how, where you are or how you are, how broken you are, or what you've been through or what your own personal weaknesses are, you deserve to be treated with respect. You don't deserve to be emotionally or physically or sexually abused. That's just a human right that you are worthy of decent treatment, no matter how broken you feel. Uh, yes, Lori, you've I've got goosebumps right now. You couldn't have said it any better than that. I completely agree with you. Um, and yes, that is a common tactic of deflecting the responsibility. It's your fault. You did this. I have not done anything wrong. In fact, I'm helping you perhaps by disciplining you or by, by controlling your life in this way. And so really, when you hear that again and again and again from the person who claims to love you, it's very easy to internalize it. But um, no, those those messages are not accurate. And you deserve a healthy relationship. You deserve respect. You are a person of dignity. And there is help and hope available for you. Um, there are resources out there to help you and to help the person who's being abusive if they're ready and willing to accept that help. So by calling the hotline or by calling Utah's link line, those are great places to start the conversation, to start thinking about uh, what your next move is, how you can do that, what it looks like. Um, no one's going to pressure you and tell you what to do or how to do it, but you can start to gather information and figure out for yourself what the best move is for you. And you can do that carefully without anyone else knowing that you're looking into what your options are. Yes. Um, and if you're doing it online, you may want to think about things like clearing your browser history. Um, if your partner has access to your phone, you may want to think about those things too. But again, for any kind of um, planning around your safety and how you go through this process, um, those resources that are going to be in the show notes that we mentioned earlier are also great places um, to help you do that. Melissa, thank you for being here and sharing these resources today. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. 
I'll end with a thought from the overcoming the stigma of intimate partner abuse. It says, quote, please know that you can get out and that it will not always be an easy road and it will be lonely at times, but it only gets better. Life is too beautiful to live it trapped and abused and hiding under the shame of it all, unquote. Please share this episode with anyone who may need it. Please love yourself enough to not allow others to keep you small or full of fear or beaten down. There are resources, so many good resources. If you go to the show notes and loveyourstorypodcast.com for this episode, um, you can get phone numbers and links to these resources and contact information for Brielle and Melissa. And I want to thank you for being here. Have a great week. Please leave a review on whatever app you're on. You can usually just scroll down and click the five stars and type in a review about what you thought about it. We'd sure appreciate that. Keep loving your story and supporting people who are in the process of doing so. We'll see you in a couple of weeks.